Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's Thursday the 21st of July. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined as usual by my colleague Ben Worthy. So we're here to talk about the um, ongoing race to succeed Boris Johnson as uh, leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Over to you Ben for your reactions on what has been a, a fascinating uh, few days for British politics. So I mean, it's important to step back a second and, and, and remember what it is we're seeing here. We have this very strange situation where um, those who are going to be prime minister are all over the television, they're having debates, um, but actually they're not talking to voters. They're talking to a tiny selectorate of less than 200,000 people now who make up the grassroots membership of the Conservative Party. Uh, we don't have a lot of data uh, but the latest data from Tim Bale we have on who this group are is they are predominantly male, they're predominantly uh, middle-aged or above, and they predominantly live in the south of England. So we're talking to this tiny selectorate. And what's happening, as we saw with the with the cancelled debate, is this is really in all sorts of divisions and fractures within uh, the Conservative Party itself. So um, there's a very famous uh, book about leadership uh, written by somebody called Stark about leadership elections in British politics. And he talked famously about the fact that actually leadership elections are often very good for democracy because they told voters a lot about what was happening in those parties. And I think this event has rather been um, the exception. After a kind of very kind of tense and uh, interesting set of debates as the MPs whittled, whittled uh, the field down to two contenders, um, we're left with Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Sunak, um, who's former chancellor, has been kind of portrayed, according to a stereotype, as a kind of high-spending, high-tax, almost left-wing chancellor. And Liz Truss has been painted by the other side as being a kind of financially irresponsible, almost kind of uh, reckless politician and also one with a rather interesting past. You've seen these videos circulating of her as a young Liberal Democrat calling for the abolition of the monarchy. So this idea that these leadership elections are often very fruitful and good for democracy, I think, have probably been uh, disproved by what we've seen so far. I, I guess my initial reaction to the leadership debate was we saw these significant differences from the field last time. By the time it was whittled down in 2019 in the race to succeed Theresa May, we had an exclusively male field debating each other on television um, after uh, other candidates were knocked out. And there seemed to be a huge amount of consensus among the candidates over uh, their vision of, of governing a kind of post-Brexit Britain. Uh, we had Rory Stewart as the kind of outlier, right? And that seems like a very long time ago in British politics when he was the kind of maverick who was uh, willing to take his tie off. And that was the kind of the most shocking aspect of, 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 uh, of those debates. This time around, we had a much more diverse field both in terms of gender and ethnicity, but also, above all, a very diverse field in terms of their uh, economic and political visions for Britain. Um, you described it as a kind of party unpaid pr party political broadcast on behalf of the Conservative Party, but the ad was quickly pulled uh, because they were giving 
extraordinary lines for the Labour Party. And the line that really stood out to me was Liz Truss's suggestion that Rishi Sunak um, and Boris Johnson had pursued a course of economic policy that was going to lead to recession. She's doubled down on this position in recent days and uh, argued that there's been a kind of um, a lack of economic boldness and, and genuine kind of Thatcherite zeal for nearly 20 years. So she's written off the entire legacy of the Conservative Party in government since David Cameron. Just returning to the Stark idea, he, he suggested that normally those in parties who were electing and choosing leaders, they go for kind of three attributes or three kind of issues in order. They go for acceptability, how acceptable is the leader to the party, electability, will the person there electing to be leader win an election, and finally competence. And, and I think applying this framework makes things look rather interesting. Um, of course, in terms of acceptability, Sunak seems to be broadly opposed by the right of the party, but seems to be the kind of champion of the centrists. Liz Truss is very much supported by the Brexity right-wing of the party. But what this means is that parts of the Conservative Party are hostile to both leaders, whoever wins. And as far as we can tell, and obviously it's hard to keep surveying members, but Liz Truss is, is the, the popular kind of favourite of the grassroots. Um, in terms of electability, the main thing that we're thinking about is there has to be an election by December of 2024. And that's not very far away at all. Um, Sunak was, of course, extolling the virtues of the fact that he would beat Keir Starmer, according to polling, but the polling only put him one point ahead of Keir Starmer. Um, and Liz Truss is a relative uh, unknown. And this gets us into the final point, which you talked about, which is about competence. And you have this extraordinary scene of um, both of them kind of appealing as competent. Um, Sunak is a kind of chancellor who made really hard choices, the difficult choices um, during COVID. Truss as the person, the Thatcherite, she used the word Thatcherite four times in an interview today, um, who gets things done, got things done with trade deals, got things done as kind of foreign secretary. But as you say, in the course of this battle, they're saying very extraordinary things about their own party and the government, which they've both been part of and which has been in power for 12 years. So I think I have a bit less time for theories of leadership than you, perhaps, that have these kind of criteria. They're kind of ideal types of leadership that produce certain outcomes. I mean, surely that theory would explain the choice of Penny Mordaunt, right? She seemed to have a kind of competence and appeal to the grassroots. Um, from what we could tell, she was the candidate Labour feared the most. And it's um, the fact that she didn't end up in the final two was about a degree of tactical coordination by the candidates. There are suggestions, unsubstantiated, that Rishi Sunak supporters lent weight to Liz Truss because they thought that she was actually the less competent and less electable opponent for Rishi Sunak to run against. So I, I guess these ideal types of leadership perhaps come a cropper, in my view, when confronted with the kind of tactical voting and strategizing that comes uh, with these uh, um, leadership contests. I think when you look at what's happened to both the candidates during the debate, I think both issues around their competence and their electability have now been damaged. I mean, I think both of them have been revealed to be pretty inexperienced politicians, at least inexperienced in terms of communication um, with the media. Both of them have tried, for example, to not answer questions or not do interviews, which is not a tactic that works um, in the long term. Both of them kind of actually have a reputation for not being particularly good 
uh, communicators. I was reading, reading a profile of Liz Trust today, and it said the fatal words in private. They're absolutely hilarious and great fun. I remember people said that about Theresa May. People said that about Gordon Brown. It's a, it's a kind of fatal words. You'll see that there's been this recirculation on social media of Liz, Liz Truss's famous speech about cheese uh, and apples. Um, and most importantly, even if we have these criteria of electability and competence, they're both deeply linked to Boris Johnson. Yeah, and just to kind of disaggregate some of those terms, my sense is that the criticisms of Liz Truss not being competent are up to a point gendered, right? She's been a, um, a foreign secretary who's exercised greater autonomy over her brief than Rishi Sunak seemed to do over economic policy. He was, in a sense, kind of parachuted into this role from a comparatively junior position of uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury um, in order to carry out an economic policy agenda um, that his predecessor wouldn't. Whereas Liz Truss has gone for a, a pretty hard Brexit in the Foreign Office, in a sense, made that brief her own for right or wrong. Um, I think they've got a really different kind of skill set. She's uh, spoken about as someone who's very competent in Cabinet, as she speaks her mind, and she's very art articulate in the kind of group dynamics that we see in Cabinet, whereas um, Rishi Sunak has a, a reputation for being more aloof. On the other hand, he seems to be a more competent public communicator. He's a very, very polished performer. And one criticism that was also leveled at, at Gordon Brown is that it's e relatively easy to be a good communicator in economic policy because you have these set pieces that you build your communication around. So the autumn or now spring statements on economic policy, the budget, it's a very tightly controlled machinery that can break down really, really quickly in, uh, in different settings. So Liz Truss will be more experienced as reacting to uh, very, very turbulent events. And she has uh, presented herself as a fairly strong uh, foreign secretary during the Ukraine crisis. Absolutely. Liz Truss has much more experience on paper than uh, Rishi Sunak. She's been uh, a minister under three different prime ministers. She's been a minister since 2014. She's done all sorts of different roles. You remember she was justice secretary, famously in the kind of heat of the Brexit debates, you know, um, done trade and also as foreign secretary. So done a variety of jobs and the kind of great officers of state as well. So let's maybe move on to talk about some of the substance of these debates to the extent that there was substance. It seemed to be largely about tax. That seemed to be the issue that divided Rishi Sunak from almost every other candidate. Liz Truss uh, has promised an emergency tax cutting budget, which rather kind of preempts the, the uh, decisions to be taken in that budget. She's promised to scrap um, the proposed national insurance rise, to cancel the planned increase in corporation tax, to suspend green levies, and to have a um, an estimated saving on the tax bill of nearly 40 billion per year. So this is a, um, a, a very clear public commitment to tax cuts that Rishi Sunak has been unwilling uh, I think to his detriment, as a candidate at least, to match. Now, why did he end up taking this position and why did uh, Liz Truss and others push so hard on this tax-cutting agenda? I think this was clearly his weakness as a candidate. We forget in a way that Rishi Sunak was an incredibly popular chancellor at the height of the pandemic. His willingness to take um, bold decisions very early on, the furlough scheme, uh, for example, um, minimised the economic consequences of the pandemic it could have been much worse he also cut taxes in those early days of the pandemic which people forget he cut business rates but um once those cuts came to an end and once the fiscal bill from the pandemic came due what we see is sunak switching into t tax 
increasing mode. So he has proposed a number of uh, tax increases, which he argues are necessary, or he argued as Chancellor are necessary, to try and shore up public finances in the UK. They amount to an increase in tax as a percentage of GDP by 2%. Um, and to put that in context, only Gordon Brown among chancellors since the 1960s has added so much to the UK's tax bill. Under Nigel Lawson, for example, we see uh, taxes as a percentage of GDP falling by 3.5%. Now, having taken those decisions as chancellor, it's now extremely difficult for Rishi Sunak as candidate to row back on them. And the, the opponents know this. So they've kind of boxed him into this position where either... He drinks the Kool-Aid and talks about uh, tax cuts, but then rubbishes his own record uh, in number 11, or he shows some consistency, uh, but finds himself uh, painted as a, as a kind of non-Thatcherite candidate. Note that Thatcherism in this story has been reduced solely to tax cuts, probably because of the memory of um, Lawson, for example. Um, Rishi Sunak has had an interesting counter to this. He points out that Thatcher spent most of her early years as Prime Minister trying to get inflation under control, actually taking really unpopular decisions that famously 364 economists disagreed with. And he's kind of channeling the early uh, uh, version of Thatcher's economic policies before we get into the Lawson days, which of course were the economics of boom and bust. Um, but it's really interesting to see them kind of dividing over this issue. It's considered to be ideological, but I also think it's pragmatic because it's about tying Rishi Sunak to his record as chancellor. And it's interesting in the light of who the selector are to, you know, and the idea of raising taxes. Um, it's completely contrary to what a lot of the grassroots, the Conservative Party, who will the members who will now be voting, um, think. And I think the, the, the polling, so, so far as it is, bears out that Sunak is, at the minute, losing and Truss is kind of the, the, the favourite to win. Um, maybe I was just going to offer a, f a few thoughts about uh, the being Prime Minister, because we now know that one of these two people are going to be uh, Prime Minister. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to reflect a little bit maybe on um, both the personalities and the context, because obviously the, the huge debate, sorry to dip into leadership theory again, is the old Machiavelli problem, which is, is it about the situation you find yourself in or is it about your own personality? And I think both 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 these politicians are relatively inexperienced, or at least relatively not as good in terms of communication as someone like Boris Johnson. Both of them seem reasonably uncomfortable, let's say, with intense media scrutiny. Uh, and both of them, as we've just discussed, are making a rather ambitious set of promises in a very difficult, a very fragile um, environment. There's economic turmoil that awaits whoever walks into number 10 at the beginning of September. There's environmental turmoil on a scale we've never seen. The, the effects of climate change are now obvious to everybody who can see it. They lead a very deeply divided party and they have an extraordinarily short time to make a difference. If an election is pushed to the very latest, we're looking at December 2024, but the levers you need to pull to improve any sort of situation are limited and the things that you can do in that time window are, are very small. And just um, a final reminder of the last kind of three prime ministers who took over from another prime minister uh, before an election. They are Boris Johnson, Theresa May and John Major, uh, not all of which kind of uh, fill us with confidence about what might happen, partly because they inherit problems, also because they inherit often very deep divisions in their party. 
I think historical institutionalists would have a field day with the concept of time in your argument in a way. If we have that little time between now and um, the next general election, there is no scenario in which inflation is um, reduced or diminished at speed. I mean, this was the story of Thatcher's uh, premiership, that it took years to get inflation under control with very, very painful measures. That's clearly a tension in Rishi Sunak's argument that he wants to get inflation under control uh, before he considers tax cuts. Um, On the other hand, policies that um, add to concerns over debt levels and UK debt as a percentage of GDP is in or around 100%, uh, which is an uncomfortable place to be. Um, uh, Policy decisions can have a very dramatic impact on how financial markets think about the sustainability of public finances. Now, I think we're a long way off um, uh, a situation uh, that, say, Greece found itself in May 2010, where financial markets lost confidence rapidly. But nevertheless, if we have such a big uh, fiscal expansion from uh, Liz Truss and it feeds into inflation and adds to the uh, 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 public debt without having these kind of magical supply side effects that she's pinned her hopes on, you could find yourself in very difficult fiscal territory very, very quickly. Um, The one thing that the leaders can probably do in the short term to try and bolster their standing is engineer further discord on Brexit. And I mean, this has been a wonderful and weird dimension of this leadership contest where we find Rishi Sunak, who was a leaver, uh, who argued for leave, is now painted as a kind of closet remainer, whereas Liz Truss, who openly campaigned for remain, is now seen as a hardcore Brexiteer and a hardcore leaver. Uh, How did we end up in this position? Yeah, it absolutely fascinates. It's part of the dynamics of what is a, a, a very kind of strange debate. One of the things that will be fascinating is how much the um, the grassroots of the Conservative Party care about the past of each candidate and where they stood in these various positions and the extent to which they feel Brexit is done or is continuing to be a, a you know an ongoing conflict. And here, of course, Liz Truss has stronger credentials as Foreign Secretary and her involvement, of course, in the withdrawal agreement, particularly around the protocol. Um, but it's going to be fascinating to see if it, Brexit still matters. As we talked in the last podcast, it seems that to lots of people in the British public, Brexit doesn't matter as much. Lots of these divisions about Remainers and Leavers that were supposed to be stable and solid in the last generations are actually starting to disappear now. But I wonder whether the same rule goes for the grassroots of the Conservative Party. So what are we looking out for in the next steps in this leadership contest? 5th of September, uh, when we'll know who the leader is, so the transition of power will happen probably that day. In between times, all eyes will be on a whole series of hustings up and down the country, uh, all in all parts of the United Kingdom, in fact, um, where there's going to be a continual debates, which will be reported in the, in the regional and the national press. Um, interestingly, uh, ballots can be can be are being sent out now for voters so that they can vote at any time. There was also an interesting report this morning that you can also change your vote. So if you decide afterwards, as a member of the Conservative Party, to vote a different way, you can also change it, which adds another um, dimension. In between times, of course, nobody knows what's going to happen. But the one place to probably keep an eye on is Conservative Home, which do regular surveys of uh, a kind of sample of their members. So you can get good, some good sense of where it's going. At the minute... Just to end with, with with a kind of prediction based on the data, um, a YouGov poll of earlier this week had Sunak on 35% and Truss on 54%, which means Truss is a clear favour among 
the grassroots of the Conservative Party, but a Conservative Home Leader survey, and they've been pretty accurate so far, puts it much closer, with Sunak on 42% and Truss on 49%. And that's a change in a week from a kind of similar figure to the YouGov poll. So depending on which data you look at, it could be that Sunak is closing the gap. So let's keep an eye on the hustings. Let's keep an eye on the polling. And then as of the beginning of September, we shall have a new prime minister. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more Westminster Watch. If you'd like to learn more about research on politics at Birkbeck, about Birkbeck Centre for British Political Life, and about the range of undergraduate, postgraduate and doctoral programmes we offer, please visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk slash politics.